Okay, this is one of those things that you probably have never heard, and then uh, as soon as somebody tells you, you're like, right, of course. You know how um, murder figures into so much of American pop culture on crime shows and thrillers and video games and all kinds of stuff? Well, if you knew somebody who actually got murdered, turns out you might not be into that stuff so much. I can't watch Law and Order. <laughs> not yeah. going to watch Law and Order or play Clue or, you know, go to a, a murder mystery dinner theater. Rachel Howard's dad was killed when she was 10. And as an adult, she's met a lot of people whose family members were killed. Now, she says that some of them love shows like CSI and Murder, She Wrote, any kind of murder show. Officially, organizations like the group Parents of Murdered Children take a stand against murderous entertainment. You know, they have um, at the Parents of Murdered Children conference, they have certain presentations really down to give you a little punch in the gut. And one of them is that they have a whole one on this um, murder mystery you know, dinners. And um, the, the way that they always do it is they say, let's, let's just pretend that you were going to have a, um, a rape mystery dinner. And you were going <laughs> to show up and the, <laughs> the rule of the game was going to be that someone's been raped and we're all going to find the rapist. Yeah. That wouldn't go over. Nobody <laughs> would do it. Everybody would feel that that was deeply distasteful. Yeah, and creepy. <laughs> yeah, creepy. Why would you want to put yourself in that role? At these conferences, for parents of murdered children, she says, everybody has a different way of dealing with their loss. Some meet with psychologists, some with crime investigators, some with psychics. But among the families who have a murder that is unsolved, it's common for them to be on a mission to find the killers and get justice. And this is where Rachel's different. A few years ago, she wrote a memoir about her family and her dad's murder. The murder was never solved. The book is called The Lost Night, and she was invited to talk about it on a radio show called The Victim's Voice. And the woman who hosts this show, her daughter had been killed, and she was one of those parents who had made it her crusade to track down the killer at any cost. And um, she was telling me the whole story about her daughter's murder and how it had been for her to never give up hope. And um, and I have to have you on my show because it'll get the word out there. You never know what's going to come up. Who knows something? Maybe a reward will come through. And, you know, I have lots of contacts in the local um, detective's office. And if you want me to talk to someone about your dad's case. And, and so we had this very awkward conversation. It it was quite a long phone call. And, um, you know, I, at every turn, I was kind of saying, you know, I'm, I'm not really interested in doing that. I don't really want to do that. You know, I, I, I talked to the detectives, and if something comes up, great. I'll be happy to know about it. But, you know, this isn't, this isn't really what I'm about. And, um, and she, she just seemed baffled. <laughs> tried to say that I had I had reached a point where it didn't really matter to me anymore looking for who killed him and that what I was doing now he would rather see me not thinking about it every day and and just moving on Rachel did have years when she felt she should be trying to figure out who killed her dad. That if she didn't let it take over her life, she was being selfish. It meant she didn't love him enough. And in writing her book, she started to work the case. She talked to the police, tracked down leads, made freedom of information requests for documents, tried to convince detectives to release the case file to her. 
And after poking around like that for a while, she asked a crime reporter to look at what she had. And he suggested that she give up. I remember sitting in the living room that day and having that conversation and feeling liberated. Why liberated? Because this guy was telling me, look, you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of these cases and it doesn't sound like you have a whole lot here. And, you know, my first reaction was, good. <laughs> I don't have to do this anymore. That's it. This guy just told me it's hopeless. Great. <laughs> I'm free. I've done everything possible. And do you worry about how heartless that might sound? <sighs> I mean, why does it sound heartless, though? Because it has nothing, nothing to do with how much I love my father. Yeah. You know, why should that sound heartless? If you want to talk to me about my father, I'd, I'd love him. I'll tell you all kinds of things about him. But why should it sound heartless to not have to, you know, keep looking for who killed him? It took her years to get to this point, where she felt so resolved about all this. In the Atlantic Monthly years ago, a writer named Eric Schlosser wrote, Americans are fascinated by murder and murderers but not by the families of people who were killed. One might expect that the families of murder victims would be showered with sympathy and support, embraced by their communities. But in reality, they're far more likely to feel isolated, fearful, and ashamed, overwhelmed by grief and guilt. Rachel says that she first read that when she was in college, and she felt for the first time that there were other people like her, going through what she went through, that this wasn't like losing a parent any other way. You know, everyone loses parents. You know, someone tells you, oh, my father died five years ago. Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. That must have been very difficult. But you know that that's what we all have to go through so that people, that person will work through it. Mm-hmm. It's not that way with murder. <laughs> There's no guarantee that that person's going to work through it. They could be ruined by it forever. And this brings us to today's radio show. People doing their damnedest not to get ruined forever by a murder in the family. From WBZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today, how to rest in peace. Our show today in two acts. In act one, a son who knows that there's something wrong with him, something he has to fix when it comes to his mother's murder and his feelings about it. In act two, a different son immerses himself in the facts of his mother's death, the cold hard reality of it, starting long before she actually dies. Stay with us. Act one. Well, we begin with this story in which a man tries to solve his problems using, among other things, videotape. A reporter for the story is Brett Martin. One day in March of 2005, a documentary film crew showed up at the house of a woman named Sumter Adolph in Westchester County, New York. Well, should we, I don't know, should we sit down and talk, or what, what's best in the situation? I don't know. Well, I, well, we just, we really wanted to talk to you about sort of your experiences in the house. I don't know. Mrs. Adolph had lived in the house for 21 years. It's an ordinary enough suburban home at the end of a long driveway, with gray aluminum siding, patches of woods on either side, and an open field out back. She and her family loved the house, but at some point they began noticing strange occurrences. They'd hear moaning and sighing, Sometimes the dishwasher would start by itself. I wouldn't even say I was cognizant of things until 
my my daughter, I'm going to say five or six years ago, woke up screaming in the night. Mommy, mommy, come, come, come. There's someone in my room. There's someone in my room. Turn on the light. There's somebody in my room. And she was under the covers, terrified. I mean, I've never... And she I've was 11 or 12? Or she must have been. On the couch, sitting across from Mrs. Adolph in her living room, is 35-year-old Jason Minter, the director of this documentary. Next to Jason is his younger sister, Maggie. 27 years ago, Jason and Maggie's mother was murdered while visiting the house, along with another mom, the woman who then lived here. Jason and Maggie, then aged six and three, were listening in the next room. I didn't really start to relate at all until, you know, we spoke. Yeah, I mean, huh. So, but a friend told me that, uh, to bring a candle from church home, that a friend of his had had somebody living in their house, mm. and they, uh, they burned a candle and said, go to the light, you know, it's okay. And so as, as I do these things, I say, you know, I'm a mother, and I understand your, your, your frustration, your, your anguish, you know, of leaving your kids. So it's okay. And I would try to reassure whichever mom is here. I know. I feel the same way. I'm sorry. <laughs> Eventually, Jason and Maggie venture upstairs to the room where the murders took place. I don't remember this half of the house. I remember this. Uh, I remember going up those stairs, of course. The last time they were here, the room was a dark paneled boys' room, but now it's clearly the room of a teen girl. A border of lavender flowers runs around the walls, there's a horse figurine and a boom box, and next to the door hangs an enormous collection of prize ribbons. The room is filled with sunlight. I remember them coming to the door, and the next thing I remember is sitting up on the bed. You remember that? And I remember them putting the gun to your head. Yes, I remember that as well. You remember running from the house and so on? I remember following you to the bedroom. You remember that? Yeah. You still have those memories? Really? No. This is too difficult? Or no? The weird thing in this scene is that while it's Maggie who starts to cry, it's Jason who you can't take your eyes off of. He's stiff and awkward, unsure of how to stand or where to look. If he's not breaking down, it doesn't seem to be because he's bearing up manfully under the strain. It's that he seems altogether distant, feeling nothing, but clearly trying to. Is a house trigger thing? Being in the house or no? Well, what, I mean, it's all well, a little really weird. T- we've never talked about it before, no. ever, even amongst ourselves. So that's, uh, that's uh, you know, that's a whole other... Hey. Yeah, you because know, we grew up really not discussing this at all. You know, we didn't discuss with our family because our family just wanted to get over it. You know? I've always thought that if I could understand everything and see everything with my own eyes again and so on and see how th- things really are and look at everything, that I would feel much better. I feel like, you know, I've confronted it, I can put it behind me. Now. Is that where you're coming from too, or no? Well, I don't know that I feel like I need to confront it as much as you do. I had no idea whether I would break down and when I walked into that bedroom or... I'd feel nothing, and um, I didn't feel a lot, that's for sure. It's two years after the footage of Maggie and Jason's trip to the house was shot, and we're in the apartment Jason shares with his wife in Inwood, at the very top of Manhattan. It seems like my sister has a much better handle on how to sort of deal with this than, than I do, or she, 
you know, I mean, she she seems to be dealing with it in a more, um, what's the word, um, in a more natural way, I guess, than than I have dealt with it. I think that's a better way. What does that mean? With my, my sister seemed to, in a way, cry on cue. I mean, she seemed to react where she presumably should should react when when she did. I mean, she broke down and I did not. Did did you ever cry over my mother's death or just in general? Over your yeah, over your mother's death. No, I don't think I ever have. I I I can't recall ever. No. This has bothered Jason for almost 30 years that he never had the emotions he should have had that he never really mourned his mother's death. That's why he revisited the house and why he's filming the documentary. Making the film has become a quest in which he's resolved to revisit and catalog every aspect of the day she died. Surely something, some detail or person or location, when looked at head-on, even relived, will trigger the feelings he craves. The logic of this approach becomes clear when you realize that for many years he revisited nothing about the murder. All he knew was what he remembered from that day. And let's start there. A warning, this gets kind of violent. Back in 1977, the Minters were friends with another family in the neighborhood with kids the same age, a boy who was six and a girl who was three. On that afternoon, March 2nd, Jason had the boy over to play while Maggie went to the neighbors. It was getting late, time for the friend to go home and for Jason's mom to pick up Maggie. So we got in a car and we uh, drove up to the house and there was a blue van sitting in the in the driveway and... I, th- I think I remember my mother asking uh, the boy if um, there was an electrician or plumber maybe at the house. Uh, looked like sort of a utility vehicle. My uh, mother and the boy walked into the house, and uh, I sat in the car alone until a guy came outside. And I just remember a guy wearing a, a like a ski cap and um, started letting the air out of the tires while I was sitting in the car. And I thought, well, is he... Maybe this van is related to some sort of auto mechanic or something, and he's doing something to the car. And then he snatched my mother's purse out of the front seat and said, Hey, kid, your mother wants you. And I um, followed him up into the house. We walked in, and the house looked like a hurricane had hit the inside of it. It was completely uh, destroyed. Um, uh, the guy took me up the stairs and into a room where my mother and the other woman were sitting on a bed. My sister was sitting on a bed with the, with her friend, and uh, my friend was also sitting there as well. Uh, the little girls were crying, and the uh, boy was trying to calm them down. And the, I, I remember one of the guys calling my mother or the other woman a bitch, and um, I was silent for a while, and then I couldn't, couldn't hold it in any longer i just became more and more alarmed and i started to to talk what's going on what is this who are you and one of the guys took a i guess it was a 22 caliber pistol and cocked the trigger and pressed the gun against my nose and said shut the up and then i was quiet and then i remember them the men looking in like brushing brushing a shower curtain aside with a pistol like looking in the in the tub and they went through an adjoining bathroom into another bedroom with the women. They closed the door, and the next thing I knew, I, th- I thought I heard only four shots. Of course, now I realize it was 14 or something. But uh, we heard these shots, and uh, 
and then we heard the van screech away and then knew that knew that these guys were gone uh went into the room and saw i went in first i told everyone to stay there and saw the two women who were both my mother was lying face down i guess the other one was on her side um and there was blood i recall but not a lot didn't i think there were it 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 was clear to me that they had been shot in the head or at least my mother had but it wasn't clear that she was dead i remember the other boy coming in lifting his mother's arm up and it just dropping and that's when i ran ran from the house jason ran through the woods to the closest neighbor's house at first the family there didn't believe him then the other kids came running up behind and the police were called Two days later, three men would be arrested in what would turn out to be a burglary gone terribly wrong. The night of the murders, Jason and his father slept together in a room at the neighbor's while police cars came and went next door. In the night, he listened while his father wept. Nobody ever actually told Jason that his mother was dead. In fact, when he'd asked a cop at the scene of the crime if she was okay, the cop said sure. Jason wasn't taken to the burial. Finally, he got the idea that she would never be coming back. And that's pretty much where his information stopped for the next dozen years. I should say at the outset that, in the years following the murder, Jason was sent to the parade of therapists you'd expect. His father seems to have tried to do everything he could do, given the fact that he was going through a devastating trauma of his own. But none of it gave Jason what he was looking for, a way to grieve his mother's death. So when he was 19, he took a train to White Plains, where the killers had been tried. At the courthouse, he photocopied the police reports, and then he sat and devoured them on the way back to Grand Central. For the first time, he learned the names of his mother's killers. He learned that only two of the men had participated in the murders, while the third man, James Walls, who Jason had seen letting the air out of his mother's tires, had waited in the van, not knowing what was going on. He also learned more disturbing details. Both his mother and the other woman had been raped before being killed. His mother had been shot three times. The first was to the head and likely killed her instantly. The other woman, not as lucky, had been shot some 11 times. While all of this was horrifying for Jason, it was also oddly satisfying. For the first time, he felt like he was getting a grasp on the murder. And this is where the idea of the documentary came to him. Under the pretense of shooting the film, he could accomplish what time hadn't and what therapy hadn't. He would continue to work his way through the case, bit by bit, like a brass rubbing, until finally the picture was complete and he could move on. All right. I don't know. I don't see any semblance of any... Well, here's a number. We went to a district attorney's office, which one I'm not allowed to say. I wasn't supposed to do this at all, but they were sort of cutting me a break. Um, But anyway, I went to a district attorney's office and looked through... I think there were six or nine bankers boxes full of evidence everything from uh, you know the police reports to crime scene photos to autopsy photos and so on and um, and we just went methodically I went through them one by one oh this is Shirley Abraham's testimony very interesting in the boxes were many letters Letters from one of the murderers, Willie Prophet, nicknamed Scrap, to his girlfriend at the time. And there was a letter from James Walls, the guy who had stayed in the van, to the same woman, whose name was Shirley. In it, Walls pleads with Shirley to corroborate his story that he didn't commit any of the violence that day. He also narrates the murders from his perspective, 
Another warning, here it gets more graphic. A few seconds, I heard a woman's voice say, it must be the furniture people or something. I heard Scrap say, hold it, bitch. I saw another little boy in a lady's car. I then told the boy his mother wanted him. Got out of the car and went inside. I then went and picked the lady's pocketbook off the front seat and put it in the van. I waited in the van about ten minutes, then got out. I walked in the front of the van thinking that Scrap and Sammy were tying the two ladies up. I'm still in front of the van, and that's when I hear the shots. Then I was about to jump in the van and drive away. As I was about to do so, Scrap and Sammy came running out of the house, hopped in the van. Scrap said to me he's going to drive, so he did. He was laughing and acting like a madman, and so was Sammy. I asked them, did you guys really shoot those ladies? And they both said yes. I said to them, why? I think Scrap said because the lady saw their faces. And then Sammy said to me, D, I don't know that little black had a long black and then Scrap said, boy, I out of that bitch, D. And I said, what? And Sammy said, yeah, D, he out of her. And then Sammy says, he the fat bitch. And then I said to myself, these guys are made man, mad men. And surely keep in mind that these are the facts and the truth and the only words of truth. Because remember, I was at the scene of the crime. Be cool and keep your head up, D.D. Walls. Well, that's quite a letter. I feel like I should have a round of applause or something for reading that. Jason continues going through boxes, avoiding the folder of crime scene photos, until his friend, who's behind the camera, prods him along. I think the uh, pictures. You? What are you, Oprah? Trying to make me look at something? I don't know. <laughs> I'll get to. I mean, uh, look, I'm getting to horrible stuff now. Photo exhibits. Oh, Jesus. Well, so we had to get to it sometime. This, I believe, is my mother, and this is what I saw that day. Um, and I think I mentioned that I thought she was still alive. I mean, as you can see... The wounds are, you know, from a small caliber gun, so... You know, to a kid, that didn't look like a really big deal. Uh, I, um... I don't find it all that disturbing. No, I really don't. I mean, first of all, I'm not seeing my mother's face in these pictures. She's lying face down. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting that... Jesus, what is this? What the hell is this stuff now? They turn the bodies over? So, how did Jason get here? How did he stay numb for so long that he needs to stare at pictures of his mother's corpse to try to provoke a reaction? Not only was his mother's death never discussed while he was growing up, neither was her life. Soon after the murders, Jason's father remarried to a woman who, for motives that seemed to be a mix of well-intentioned and kind of crazy, set about erasing all the physical evidence that Jason's mother had ever existed. Jason doesn't even know how many letters and photos and other personal items his new stepmother threw out, 
but he knows that all the gifts his mother had given him disappeared. His father divorced his second wife and married a third. Jason developed a severe case of separation anxiety, the fear that he was going to lose his father too. He also decided that it was up to him to see that nothing like the crime ever happened again. Like sort of security obsession where I, where I um, uh, built locks for doors and windows in our house and drilled holes and things and built weapons and did all sorts of things uh, sort of protect the home, protect the family. So I, had, I, built, I built weapons and I hid them all over the property and all over the house. Um, what kind of weapons did you build? Oh, I had, I had all sorts of things. I had like bats with you know nails sticking out of them to, uh, you know, to makeshift morning stars, uh, to swords, to spears, to clubs. I had a, an arsenal of BB guns and pellet guns. Uh, and these were, these were spread out around your house. Well, yes, yes, they were. I set up a, a really primitive. When I got a little older, I set up a really primitive closed circuit TV. Uh, in my room, I had a card table and a and an old black and white television sitting on it, and then I had a, you know, one of the probably one of the first video affordable consumer video cameras uh, to ever come out was sitting in in the hallway, just pointing at the stairs, and I just sit there staring at the stairs with with a you know a bunch of BB guns on the table. You would spend hours I doing would, that. I would spend hours staring at it, waiting for somebody to just come, you know, basically make my day. At one point, I, I was building. Um, I, I I'd seen Ben or Willard on television, and and thought that I could I could raise rats and and train them to sort of protect the you know protect me and the family and sort of do my bidding. So I had this plan to go to the uh, pet store and buy some rats, and uh, I started building a pen down in one of the old stables. And my father caught me like carrying hauling a big door down. And he said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm going to set up a pen to raise rats." And he just looked at me and said, "No, you're not." I mean, I'm curious that you say, I mean, it sounds like your, your, your sense of your dad's response to all this was that he was annoyed by it. He was annoyed by it. And, I, I, you know, I don't remember the specific uh, incident. I mean, I think I was putting maybe a new lock on the basement door or something and drilling holes. And he came home from work and caught me doing this. And I said, well, how can you not be afraid? How can you not be nervous? And he said, because lightning doesn't strike the same place twice. And that annoyed me because I just didn't buy that at all. For all the confusion and trauma of his youth, Jason did manage to graduate from high school, go to film school, get married, and basically take care of himself. In fact, it's impossible to tell Jason's story without at least mentioning what he does for a living. For the past nine years or so, he's worked for the TV show The Sopranos. First as a location manager essentially driving through suburban neighborhoods, looking for houses where he could stage murders, and then as an associate producer and assistant to the show's creator, David Chase. I'm not the first person to have drawn a connection between his childhood experiences and the fact that he wound up spending almost a decade helping to recreate graphic, often random and senseless, violence on screen. I'm also not the first person to have Jason shut me down. Jason says it has nothing to do with his childhood. He didn't create the series. He didn't write the series. Sometimes a good job is just a good job. So, on and off for years, Jason was doing one of the few things you can do to get over a trauma. He returned to the details of what happened. He immersed himself in them. 
filming all sorts of people and locations. And when it failed to deliver the emotional catharsis he was looking for, he became gripped by a different goal. He doesn't just want to revisit his mother's murder. He also wants to resolve it. Never mind that the police solved it years ago and that the three men involved were all serving sentences of 25 years to life. Jason's totally serious about this and spent probably a third of our interview on the subject. For a long time, he's had the suspicion that maybe the murders weren't entirely random. That the killers didn't just happen upon that house by accident, but were sent there to kill a particular person. He even has a theory about who and why, a theory I can't actually repeat on the radio because it's probably libelous. He talks about interviewing up to 30 more people, from assistant DAs to distant relatives of the killers, almost all of them to help make his case. And when the Department of Corrections agreed to set up a meeting in the medium security wing of Attica with James Walls, the guy who'd stayed in the van, Jason had visions of finding some kind of new clue to support his theory. Would you be Mr. Walls? Mr. Walls, I'm Jason Minter. How are you? I'm fine. Last um, time you, you saw know. me, I had hair. So did you, for that Yes, matter. I did. <laughs> for the record, yes. The last time they saw each other was the day of the murders. This joke should give you a sense of the tenor of the conversation, which is held in an empty prison cafeteria. Jason's all business. Walls is a middle-aged black man with a neat mustache and oversized round-wire glasses. He slides back and forth between expressing regret for his involvement in the crime and self-pity over the unfortunate coincidence, almost 30 years ago, of running into the murderers as they were on their way to what they said would be a simple breaking and entering. Meanwhile, Jason has his gumshoe hat on and hammers away at the point he's most interested in. Did the other two men know where they were going, or did they choose a random home? What did they say? Do you remember specifically? Did they say they were going to go on a B&E, or was it something else? Did somebody tell them about No, they was conversing about a breaking and entering, but they didn't know where, to, where they was going, as far, right. as, as far as what I understood. So there's no chance of them knowing, there was no chance of them targeting any of these houses, do you think? Mm. They couldn't have known about this, any of these houses? I don't think so. You don't think so? No, because no, the way they was acting inside the van when they was talking they was talking more or less like pick and choose so they didn't they, so they didn't you really don't think they knew where they were going no 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 because like I'm saying after they made a, an approach to one house and the woman came to the door and the dog was barking and they they, they sort of like backed up because when they saw the big dog they like I said they sort of backed up and jumped right back into into the van and took off and they were talking about yo man you see that big ass dog man I ain't I'm going to, you know, it's one of those things where, right. let's go over here. None of this could have come as a surprise to Jason, because everyone tells him his theory is almost certainly false, including the cops who investigated the case, who Jason interviewed. When pressed, even Jason admits there's not much evidence to back him up. Still, it's easy to understand the allure of the idea that the crimes weren't just a random incident. Imagine going through life not just knowing, but really knowing, that your life can implode in the worst possible way at any moment. Imagine internalizing the notion that every little decision, like driving over to the neighbor's house to drop off a friend, could put you in the path of disaster. If that sense of a random universe were gone, it might allow Jason to stand down his defenses, and not just metaphorically. Jason's apartment features a level of security that's excessive even by New York standards. Three deadbolts and a heavy burglar bar are on the door. Jason says he'd own a gun if New York State didn't make it such a pain to get a license. Instead, scattered about are a collection of swords, including a samurai number that Jason keeps by the bed. There's also a scythe and an axe that Jason insists are antiques rather than weapons, but look like they'd probably do in a pinch. 
Nothing Jason has done has gotten him any closer to getting rid of those weapons, let alone moving past his mother's death. And lately, he's slowed down his investigation of the murder night. He has permission from the prison system to go see the two killers themselves, but he hasn't been able to bring himself to pay a visit. Are you at all afraid that you're going to someday know everything and not feel any better? Uh, yeah, certainly I, w- I wouldn't be any worse off than I am now, for that matter. I mean, I'm certainly a functional adult, uh, well, a functional immature adult, but, um... You seem quite functional. Um, you. <laughs> you know, I mean, as far as I can tell, I mean, as, as far as certainly on the, the, the scale of, of external problems you could have, you were... Married, you've held a job for a long time, you're starting a business, you have a nice house, two cats, um, you are capable of social interaction. I mean, these are all things, you know, so, so what is the, uh, so what, are, you know, what is your problem? Well, what, are you asking me what I hope to accomplish by? Well, what, what is missing? What, what is the drive? Yeah, I mean, what other, I mean, what is, is this for you or is it for your mother? Who's it for? To stop, you know, uh, just, my hope is that I'm able to stop uh, or to cease to uh, obsess over that day. Uh, my, you know, I hope to, I hope to not, I hope to not think about, you know, the murder twenty six times a day, you know, maybe once a day or once every two days uh, to stop sort of obsessing uh, about it. And here. Three hours into our interview, an interview that began with him declaring that if he just knew everything about the murder night, he could move on, we get to this. You know, I looked at crime scene photos, I went back into that room, I talked to one of the guys, and um, and where did he get me? It just, uh, I just feel like I haven't accomplished the task yet. I mean, does it, has it occurred to you that maybe it's not that you haven't done enough, but that the exercise is flawed? That has occurred to me, absolutely. Now I feel like I'm trying... I I wonder whether I should just really just intensely try to focus on my mother and and forget, you know, not forget about the crime, obviously, but try to to, uh, stay away from that as much as possible mentally and to just not make the rest of the film. About a year ago, Jason found a box of old cookbooks that belonged to his mother in his father's garage. Somehow they'd been overlooked by his first stepmother when she was purging the house of Bonnie Minter's things. You know, I, I just... Yeah, I found old recipes that were stuffed into these pages that weren't looked at and, you know, 30... You know, that she stuffed in there 30 years ago. And I... That's when it occurred to me that, you know, you're, you've never really thought of your mother as, 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 a, as a real person. It's been this event or this horrible thing that happened to you. Not that she was a horrible thing, but she was a victim of this horrible thing that, in some ways, you know, has defined my whole life. It's just a big garage here, but it's, uh, you can see the potential. When The Sopranos ended, Jason decided to get out of television and open a restaurant. He leased a corner storefront not far from his apartment and negotiated a good deal to buy the tables, chairs, and serviceware of Vesuvius, the Sopranos' fictional Italian joint. One clear memory Jason has of his mother is of her in the kitchen. He remembers long strands of fresh pasta slung between chairs throughout the house, 
And finding the cookbooks made him think that cooking could be a way to connect with her memory. There'll be a big wine beer bar over here, sort of an open kitchen. Right now the space is raw and empty, but it's a beautiful spot, looking out on a green stretch of trees and park. Jason and his wife have put a huge Halloween display in one window for the neighborhood kids. It would be glib to say that the restaurant is the opposite of the documentary, that one looks back and the other forward. One focuses on what's lost, the other on building something new, that one's about death and the other life. It's just too simple to be true. But standing there in the space, listening to Jason describe his vision for a homey neighborhood hangout, seeing people stop by to ask when he'll finally open, it does seem a little true. As he's locking up, a boy and his father come walking out of the park. The kid runs up to the door, tries to push his way in. Not quite yet, Jason says, hopefully. Soon. Brett Martin. He's a correspondent for GQ magazine. In the two years since we first broadcast this story, Jason has opened his restaurant, Indian Road Cafe. It's thriving. His mom's murderer agreed to be interviewed for Jason's movie, but with the restaurant so busy, the film's on hold for now. calls you up and says, I want to rehearse my own suicide. And you're a good kid. You want your mom to be happy. And you get in your car and you go help her. That's in a minute. From Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme and bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, How to Rest in Peace. Well, so far today, we've heard from people who have had a really hard time getting over the violent death of a parent. Now in Act 2, we turn to somebody who's actually kind of at peace with his mother's death, which, when you hear how she died, is kind of amazing. The idea was that her plan was to take the whole bottle of pills sitting in her bed with the plastic bag ready and a scarf ready to wrap around her neck to seal the bag. And... uh that she would take the pills, put the plastic bag on, put the scarf around, and lie down. And that's what she did. We'll call this guy Edward. And when his mother killed herself at 79, she wasn't depressed. She wasn't sick with some terrible illness. No, she was lively, funny, social, able to take care of herself. But she planned for her own death for decades. Ever since she saw what happened to her mom when her mom got old. Her mother suffered from dementia, 
became confused and incoherent. Edward's mom had a hard time even visiting her mom during those years. Also, she hated doctors. Hated them. Hated hospitals, too. It was a strong gut feeling on her part that this was terrible. She couldn't stand the thought of seeing people in hospitals with tubes coming out of them. Um, And she was determined never to be in that environment if she could possibly help it. And she and my father, but really at her initiation, you know, promised each other that they would help each other. Yeah. That they would not let each other suffer in old age. And they bought the book um, uh, Final Exit uh, by Derek Humphreys, which talked about this. And uh, they were counting on each other. And at some point she gets you involved in this, right? She, she got me most involved when my father died. What she asked me to do was to uh, basically to play the part that my father would have done for her. But he was dead. And um, I felt it was an obligation uh, to do this for her. Yeah. Did she, did she say it so flatly as, I want you to do what your father would have done? I forget how she phrased it. She was really asking me not to interfere, not to oppose, to support her in this. She didn't want me to help her. She was very concerned about something happening to me. She didn't want me to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. She didn't even want me to be embarrassed. You know, she said, you know, the ambulance is going to come and the police will come and the neighbors will see and they'll be, you know, you know, it'll be bad for your reputation. I mean, uh, how can I do this? So I was in the rather odd position of having to reassure her <laughs> that she could do this without embarrassing me. Um, so I was in this double situation of not wanting to encourage her. But, but also wanting to comfort her and so that she doesn't feel anxious about the consequences for, for me or anybody else. Well, that's the thing that I was wondering is it seems like you're in a very delicate position because you don't want to be encouraging her, I assume, to, right. to, to, to kill herself. That's correct. Yeah. I didn't want to encourage her, but I didn't want to refuse to discuss it with her, to help her emotionally go through the process of talking about it and dealing with uh, the preparation for it. It's interesting. I think think a lot of people are so uncomfortable talking about death with someone else. Was that hard for you? Uh, It wasn't that hard. And I got used to it. It was, I had a lot of preparation. This was nothing new. And she was very um, focused on this end for well over 20 years. It was just an established fact. This is what she wanted. This is the way I could love her. Um, This is what she really asked me for. She didn't ask me for anything. This is what she asked me for. And she used to say that she did not want to live to be very old. She said, 80, that's far enough. Why do you have to live past 80? She would go into this stuff. Why live past 80? Right, I don't want to get so old. Why do people want to live so long? It's, what's the point, you know? Did, did she have the experience of, 
of observing herself, getting more forgetful and feeling more confused. And she knew that she was experiencing dementia, the early stages of it, and she remembered her mom. I think that for the last, I observed for the last 10 years a slow deterioration. She had been always a big cook and doing, you know, taking cooking lessons, Chinese, and all sorts of things. And um, at the very end, about a month before she died, she had asked my wife to come down and she said she I couldn't make a cup of coffee. You know, she just couldn't make a decent cup of coffee. And she didn't. She was really frustrated. She had to go out for coffee, and so she asked my wife to come down and show her what was going wrong. And my wife spent about an hour trying to explain the process of using a French press, which is what she was using. Right. Which is about as simple a way to make coffee as you can have. Right. You take the grounds, you put it in, you pour the water on top, you wait, and then you push the thing down. Exactly. And she. It was a real struggle for her to get that. And I think that's the kind of thing that she did all the time. These kinds of things could all of a sudden become an incredible burden to her. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about that that I know you went through is 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 that your mom would would rehearse? Like she she would run through scenarios and drag you into this? Well, she did a test. She... Uh, knew that she had to get some sleeping pills. So she basically went to two different doctors and lied and said that she couldn't sleep and needed it. She took a couple of these, and I was there. She she wanted to see what would happen. And she took two of these, and she she was out in a matter of a couple of minutes. She started rehearsing because she was afraid that she wouldn't be able to do it or she wouldn't remember to do it. Oh, she wouldn't remember what to do. So she would uh, ask me to come down and, uh, you know, watch her while she did this. And and so what was that like? It was weird. It was definitely weird. And so, wait, so you'd be at home and she'd call you up and she'd say, like, can you come on over tonight? I want to rehearse the I want to practice. I want, really? That's I, it? Exactly. There'd be some joking about it and that kind of stuff. And she was not, she was not somber. She wasn't depressed. And so, and so you would, like, order in some Chinese and go no, over to your mom's no, house? No, didn't have to quite that. Maybe she invited me for dinner. Right. You know, she would make the dinner. Right. And she would invite me for dinner, and then, we'd, you know, I, uh, then she would uh, do the practice. And she also wrote out a note to be prepared. She wanted to be prepared. Right. So she wrote out a note explaining what she was doing in a more lucid moment when she could do that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and she got her things that she wanted to use, you know, the, the scarf mm-hmm. and the bag and um, the note. And she actually put together the books, like the final exit book. And I think she had some other books. She placed it all out so that anybody coming and the police, I had to call the police. And when they came, uh, this was all laid out. It's interesting. It isn't just her rehearsing herself. It's almost like she was rehearsing you, too. So you could go through your feelings so when it would finally happen. I think so. Yeah. Now, legally, could she call you and say, okay, I'm doing it today, um, and have you know? Everybody knew. The family came over the—she over the, did this at the end of August, mm-hmm. and over the summer, 
her her sister and brothers came, um, my cousins came, and friends came, and you know to pay a visit. And I was calling people and explaining that she's planning to do this, and it's not going to be that long, and maybe you would like to come and visit her. <laughs> and people did come with her brother, who was the last one. She played a total game with him. He was opposed to her doing it. He thought she was depressed. And he thought that she was, you know, she just needed to get out. So he wanted to invite her down to New York City. They'd go into the city and do things that she used to like to do and go to museums and go out. And and so he was trying to encourage her to do that, thinking that she must be depressed. And... uh she said, sure, and they made plans for her to go down to the city the next week. And when he left, she called me and said she's going to do it now. She um, said that if I don't do it now, I will not be able to do it. Did she do it right after the brother was there because she realized like, that she was weakening, that she, that she could weaken, she could, she could just... I don't think so. I think she played the total game with him. She would not want to hurt his feelings while he was there. She would just play along. He's telling her these things, and she would say, oh, sure, that sounds lovely. But she wouldn't. She would know inside of herself this isn't at all what she wants. Hmm. And I think that she knew that she was really losing her ability to organize her thoughts in, uh, enough to be able to carry this out and so then you have to hang up the phone and then you're sitting in your house and you know that she's in her house and she's doing this thing right then? No, I went down. She asked me to come down. Oh, she did. Yeah. No, so I went down and we talked about it and she was determined to do it. And um, she got all her stuff ready and uh, we said goodbye and I left. And it was very odd, me leaving, knowing what she's doing. Where'd you go? <laughs> I just drove around. I went shopping. I went to the supermarket. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I just I didn't sit there holding, wringing my hands. Uh, it was it was somewhat surreal, the experience. It just seems so so uh, sad that she has to be alone at that moment. It seems like it that's the terrible. moment it was where, terrible. where, of all moments, she would want somebody with her to hold exactly. her hand and exactly. comfort uh, her. Right. That was probably the worst part of it, that she had to do it alone. Me and her other family members could not be there because we live in a society that does not respect people's desire to control their end of their life. So you go back into the house. Was there a part of you where you thought, well, maybe she didn't do it? My fear was that she didn't die, that you, I would go in and she would be still alive. She, uh, but she had taken this overdose of medication, and somehow she was still alive, and what was I going to do then? Yeah. I mean, the worst thing, that she, the, the last thing she would want me to do is to call an ambulance and take her to the emergency room. Yeah. I mean, that would be the last thing she would want. And um, so she, you know, uh, she did me a great favor by being successful. Yeah. It just seems so terrible you walk in and it seems so, um, the fact that she's there with a bag over her head. 
Yes. It, it was uh, it was odd, and it was an image that stays with me. Uh, I, I honestly didn't sit in the room for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't something that I wanted to be have imprinted on me any more than it had to be. And it was very emotional at the you know to obviously to see her dead, you know. And I sat down and I cried on, at that moment, and, as I am now. <laughs> and, uh, and then I had to walk down to the police and uh, tell them that you know she had done it, and they came. And they they took it seriously. Uh, I told them the whole story. I told them that the relatives had all come and talked about it, that everybody knew what was going on. And they took evidence. They took the glass that she had used, and they took her note, and they, you know, got fingerprints and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, but she had handled everything. She had done it all. Do you have a sense that your mother um, tamed death, that she made it less frightening for herself by... going into the details and thinking it through to this degree? I think she did. I think that would be accurate. I think that she had the normal fear of death, fear of unknown, fear of also losing life. And, And I think by talking about it is the way that she convinced herself I gotta say, it seems very rare for somebody to get to that point and to come to grips with death in such a thoughtful way. I think it is. You don't hear about it frequently. People who are involved in assisted suicide are usually people who have objectively certifiable problems. What's interesting talking to you about it is how... um, how at peace you are with it, how there's no ambiguity that it was the right thing. I think it's, I'm expressing the the determination that she had. She, she was her own unique person. This is what she wanted. Yeah. This is the way she thought about life. And she would have liked, she, uh, my, uh, I, my son had children just a few years after she died. Mm-hmm. And she would have very much liked to have seen that. But that year, uh, I think within six months of her death, her sister was killed in an automobile accident. And I think that she would have been devastated by that. So who can say what she should have done or not done? Tell me that you love me one more time. Before you leave, before you leave Wrap your arms around me, hold me tight Before you leave 
Our program was produced today by Sarah Koenig and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltis, John Jeter, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Production up from Bruce Wallace and Aaron Scott. Seth Lynn's our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Special thanks today to Elise Spiegel and Jill Wolfson. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who's come up with a new scheme to solve his personnel problems. All the employees that he's unhappy with, all of us who don't do what he wants, he's lining up some replacements. And thought that I could I could raise rats and, and train them to sort of do my bidding. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. The darkness that shadowed you was mine. Public Radio International.